Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome again to Orange Crest Community Church. My name is Taylor Neese, and I serve on the advisory team here at OCC. Um, I've been coming around OCC since the second week that we've been meeting regularly on Sunday mornings, which was February of 2008. A lot has definitely changed in my life since back then. First, just personally in family life. So when we showed up in February of 2008, I was dating a girl named Brittany, who a few, sh- few short months later um, became my fiance. Um, finding a church home and some leaders to, that we could serve under and just a, a place that really felt like home was a kind of a prerequisite for us to take that next step in, in marriage. And so, you know, once we had done that, I quickly asked her to marry me. And um, in December of that year, we became um, husband and wife. And now, you know, almost nine years later, we have four amazing children. Here's a picture of them here. So, my wife Brittany in the middle, that's my daughter Nora, she'll turn five in July between the two of us. On the far left is Cohen and his twin brother Jones, they turn three in this July. And then um, our newest member to the niece clan, that's Crosby, he'll be seven months in just a couple of days. And so, um, definitely have, have just, you know, expanded my capacity, I guess, in the area of family life since, you know, nine years ago. Also professionally, so when I showed up in February 2008, I don't know the exact detail. I had either been offered a job at CBU or was about to interview for the job. Now, I know I wasn't working there because I started working at California Baptist University in March of 2008. And God has really afforded me quite a bit of opportunity there, which I'm really grateful and, and humbled to be a part of. It's kind of a joke that I can't maintain one role for more than three years. And so I'll be, I just celebrated my nine-year work anniversary, if, that, if that's such a thing. I think LinkedIn calls that a thing, but, you know, work anniversary. And I've had, this will be my fifth position in, in those nine years. And so I'm transitioning to the Dean of Admissions, currently serve as a Director of Undergrad Admissions. We'll be transitioning um, on Wednesday, June 1st. I'm on vacation that day. So I told my boss, are you sure you want to make it official June 1st? Because I'm, we'll be on vacation, but um, officially June 1st, uh, get to serve as the Dean of Admission and, um, you know, definitely feel underqualified uh, to do that, but grateful for the opportunity to just have a variety of roles at, at CBU. Spiritually as well, when, when we showed up and Brittany and I showed up, I had just probably within the last year really got serious about following God exactly. And so um, I, the amount of spiritual growth that, that, that has, has happened is um, because of, of this church, really, and the leaders that have poured into to Brittany and I, and many training opportunities for me, just to, to learn what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower, a follower of Christ. And so, just grateful for the spiritual growth and the investment that this church has had in my, in my family. And so, really honored to be able to share with you this morning. I'm not Josh. I'm not a pastor. This will be my second time ever doing this. Um, and, and both times that Josh has asked me, I thought, are, are you sure, you know, are you sure that I'm the right person for this? And, um, but I really appreciate the opportunity. Josh and his wife, Erica, are in New Mexico with 51 others. They are at a, a training summit as, as part of, uh, there's a graduate level training program here at OCC called the Antioch Project. And so these people that are, the, the trainees are really since a call to full-time ministry. And so annually, what, there's five different churches participating in the Antioch Project and they meet in New Mexico for this summit. Just a renewed focus. They hear from different leaders from the different churches and um, as they kind of recap the, the year in the past and look forward to the year ahead. And so Josh and his wife Erica, along with the five other senior pastors, coach these these 51 trainees and, and their spouses and 
Um, so we really, we, we do Antioch Project for a variety of reasons, but one is that we really want to be used by God to see more churches planted that have a similar DNA to OCC. And so we want to see churches like this multiply that have a similar mission and values. And one of the ways we do that is to train future leaders of churches. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to pray for Josh and Erica and, and just the summit, and then we'll launch into our message series this morning. So let's pray. God, we are grateful for, for Josh and his leadership. Um, I'm personally grateful for his investment in my life and how he really has um, just shaped this congregation into um, the values that we have, God. Pray for him and Erica at the summit. Yeah, I pray for the other leaders as well and all the trainees that it would just be a really helpful time, God, a time to, to kind of retreat from everyday responsibilities and to focus on you, to focus on um, what it looks like to have a life in full-time ministry, God. Would you speak through the, through the leaders, God? Would you um, just allow everyone there to focus and to have a renewed sense of just motivation and direction, God? In your name we pray. Amen. We're continuing on in our message series called TikTok, and so far in this message series, we've looked at some key people in the Bible and how they've responded to opportunities as God has presented them to them. Um, we've talked about kind of this, this concept of time and how typically in our world we tell time by a watch, right? Or maybe by a calendar. But really, God doesn't use a watch or calendar to, ta- to tell time. He uses opportunities. And it's these opportunities that mark our lives as significant points. Um, and, and so we, the first week, we looked at Sarah... And really, as she patiently waited with, with some fear for God to fulfill his promise. Um, and we've also looked at, at the life of, um, of Moses, who really felt underqualified and inadequate for the, God, for the task that God had for him. Really, God had tasked him to lead his people out of Egyptian captivity into the promised land. And I can identify with Moses in my, in my role in the leadership that I have, just really feeling underqualified and inadequate for the job. And what Moses would say to us is, you know, to play your part. God has you in that situation for a reason and to faithfully play your part and to buy up the opportunities that God has for you. If you missed either of those series, they're, they're available on our website. I would encourage you to listen. But this morning we're, we're looking at a, a man named Peter. Now, Peter is a, is a key figure in Christianity, certainly in the life of Jesus. He was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. He had the privilege of really walking alongside Jesus in his ministry, side by side. He, and he had some life-altering experiences as he left his nets as a fisherman and decided to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and boss of his life. Now, Peter, he was a pretty impulsive guy. He often spoke and reacted without thinking. He was a hard-working, no-nonsense guy before his life with Christ. And once he decided to follow Christ, that personality was still there. You see that? You know, he was pretty rough around the edges. But this is encouraging. That God didn't prevent, he didn't have those traits prevent him from really being effective in his ministry. God still gave him very close access to Jesus Christ as he was here on earth. And he used Peter in significant ways. Um, Jesus, he really saw something in Peter. And this, for us, this can give us hope. If he can use someone like Peter, and we're going to look at some of Peter's failures, surely he can use us. And, and we all have our own shortcomings. I personally have my shortcomings, struggles, personality flaws. But God's grace is displayed in our life as it was in Peter's life, even through our failures. Maybe you can identify with Peter. Um, again, Peter was impulsive. At one point in, in Peter's life, he's with Jesus in a garden. And a soldier comes to arrest Peter. Excuse me, a soldier comes to arrest Jesus. And Peter reacts by 
chopping off the soldier's ear. All right? That's his response. So I'm not sure. I don't know that I would do that, but that was Peter's kind of, that came out and he chops off his ear. And Jesus intervenes and he basically says, we're not going to do it this way. He heals the, the soldier's ear in the spot. Uh, but that was, that was sort of Peter's impulse. And maybe, maybe you could identify with that. Maybe you struggle with, with anger or have some temper issues. Maybe you're reactive. This certainly identifies, would, would identify with Peter. Maybe you got, get caught up in following your desire. The Bible says that we all have desires, some good, God-honoring desires, and some really, really bad, nasty desires. You know, worldly desires and selfish desires. And maybe you struggle following doing life God's way, and you just constantly are giving in to, to those kind of worldly and fleshly desires. Peter would identify with that as well. Maybe you struggle to really engage your mind before you reply. And so you see something, and you just automatically reply with, with words or with action, and, and you're, you're a bit reactive. That's something that we could, um, that, that we could identify with Peter. He, he did that as well as we see. One of the things most associated with Peter is that Peter was a man who knew failure. His most well-known failure was actually foretold by Jesus. Jesus predicted his failure before it happened. We see this prediction in John 13, 36 through 38. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Again, there's something actually really encouraging about this because Jesus, being God in flesh, he knows all things. He knew that Peter would fail. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. Yet he still chose Peter to be one of his closest disciples. In the same way, God knows our failures. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God. He knows our, our past failures. And newsflash, we will continue to fail. I'll probably fail today. But God knows that. He knows our future failures. And, and, and this is encouraging. This should encourage us. Because despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, God's grace can still be displayed in our life. He has called me, and if you're a Christian, he has called you, into a personal relationship with him despite our susceptibility to fail. Again, the reality is that, that a Christian, this is an important thing to, to know here, is that we have a very real enemy in Satan. And the enemy wants to capitalize on our failures to drive us away from God. He wants to use that failure as a wedge to separate us from God. And so we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that and, and sort of how we have to, have to overcome the lies of the enemy. Now, Peter, you know, when Jesus predicted this, he probably could not believe that this would ever come true. Maybe you would have responded the same way. You know, not me, Lord, not me. There's no way, Lord. Peter actually even took it a step further in that verse, and he boasted about his loyalty. He said, surely I will be loyal. Peter eventually ate those words. Many of you may know the story, but Peter did reject knowing Christ. Just after Jesus was arrested and hours before his crucifixion, Peter did it as the rest of the disciples. So Jesus, the rest of the disciples fled. Peter did the same thing. And they watched Jesus. He was willingly handed over, even though he lived a perfect life on this earth and, and had done nothing wrong. There was no means for, for him to be arrested. He didn't, Peter didn't run to the next city or really far away. He actually just got a safe distance away and, and watched the events that ensued right after that arrest. And just as Jesus predicted, Peter denied. 
him three times. Let's look at John eighteen seventeen. It says, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Denial number one. Later on in that chapter, verse 25 to 27, we see that and it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Denial number two. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, as we just heard about, he asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Denial number three. And the promise, the prophecy comes true. And the rooster crows. Now imagine that. You're Peter. There's no way, Lord. I'm loyal. I'm going to walk with you. Not me. And then you hear this very audible sound, which is just proof of your failure. Oh my goodness. God was right. I did deny him. How could I do that? Now Peter, he, he could have just stopped right there. Three failures, done. Checked out. I'm a failure. But God really, as we'll see in a little bit, God uses Peter and his failure to be incredibly influential in the Christian movement. Now, sometimes God, he must test us, and he uses those tests. You know, he's not out to trap us, but he does use those tests for growth. If you think of it like a ladder, like rungs on a ladder, so if your spiritual growth is just climbing up these rungs, sometimes those rungs are actually failures or events in our life where we don't do the right thing, but we learn from it. And the growth comes if we learn to get back up. Once we're knocked down, we get back up rather than to sit there and just grovel and wallow in the dirt. Now, Peter was eventually restored by Jesus. He was given the tremendous privilege and responsibility to help move the early church forward just from a small group of followers from the very, very early days. Peter was tested again. We see this in Acts 4 and 5. But this time he passes the test. He broke through. He learned from those previous mistakes and God used him in extremely powerful ways. And here's where the story connects with us. Again, newsflash, folks. We have some failures in the past. Those aren't the last of our failures. We will continue to fail. The important thing is, what do you do when you fail? So here's some just real practical help. The first is that when we fail, we need to fight against guilt. The temptation will be that you will feel extremely guilty after you failed. And that can really take you out if you let it. There's also shame. You can almost start to sort of adopt this identity as a failure. Oh man, I've done it again. You know, I, I do this. I've been walking with God a little while now, and I still feel like I should not be making this mistake time and time again. I ought to be walking closer with God by now, right? And the enemy will use this. He'll use your failures to have this guilt and this shame again to, to drive you further and further away from God. Embarrassment. You know, sometimes when we fail, it affects others. It affects our reputation. You know, we, we, we feel embarrassed for the people around us that have seen us fail, or maybe we're affected by our failure. It's important that we move past these points, because if not, we'll get stuck. That failure will take us out. And I have a, I have a personal story, kind of a funny story, but it's a, it's a true story that is a failure of mine that was incredibly embarrassing. My sophomore year of high school, I played soccer all growing up. I was a goalkeeper. My sophomore year of high school, um, our high school team was actually rated number one in the nation for a high school soccer program by an Adidas coaches poll. Now, just to clarify, I played on the JV team, so I was not part of, of that successful varsity team. But after the season was over, you know, the rosters were shuffling. The seniors had, had finished. They were graduating, and they were shuffling the rosters to see who was going to make the varsity team. And so if you got the call from the coach to practice with varsity that day, that was a huge deal. And 
One day I got the coach, or I got the call, hey Taylor, we need, we need a goalkeeper, why don't you go ahead and, and scrimmage with us? And so, okay. So, uh, you know, I actually jog from the, from the JV field to the varsity field, I'm nervous as I'll get out, and I have one goal in mind. My goal is not for a stellar all-star performance. My goal is to not royally screw this up, right? This is my opportunity. My dad used to say, you know, you have to play to win, not not to lose. Well, on that day, I was playing not to lose, right? I just didn't want to mess it up. So about five or ten minutes go by. I haven't messed it up yet, doing okay. Pretty slow-paced game, you're not, not getting a lot of action, but at this point in the game, my left back has the ball, and if you know much about soccer, we'll just pretend like this, the, you know, this is the goal right behind me. It's quite often that your defense will pass it back to the goalkeeper because they can really have complete vision of the field and decide where to play. They can play it long if they want to go on a counterattack. They can play it out wide if they want to switch the field. And so my left back plays the ball to me. It's a pretty slow rolling ball. I'm not going to act like it was going fast. Pretty slow rolling ball. And my brain says, your right back's open. Why don't you just go ahead and, and knock it out wide to your right back? So, so the ball's rolling, and I do one of these. And it just literally rolls by me at an incredibly slow pace. There is n- no place I would have rather been than in a dirt in the ground, or a hole in the dirt in the ground, and just bury myself. My coach was a no-nonsense type of guy. I heard about it from him. My... My teammates, who weren't really my teammates, these are the varsity guys, were incredibly mad at me. And I was just completely embarrassed. Now, the perception from them is that this guy comes in and he, and he just steps aside from the ball and lets it roll on the goal. Now, what really happened is that in my head, it's saying, you know, play the ball out to the right. My foot did not get the message from my head and, and I just stand there. Still can't really explain what happened, but it was incredibly embarrassing. And it's kind of a silly story, but it's true. And, and our failures oftentimes lead to some embarrassment. And we really must move forward. It's in these moments that we have to realize that God actually holds a reputation in our hand. We all want to please man. That's a desire of ours. But we need to want to please God before that. And so even after your failures, you need to trust your reputation in God, even if people might look at you a little differently. We also, you know, we need to fight against comparison. Think about a time that you've compared yourself to somebody and it was extremely helpful. Right? tough to come by. And so it's really important, especially in the midst of failures, just to refuse comparison. It is not helpful. And Peter, he's probably feeling all of these things after, after, his, after his failure. You know, he's probably feeling guilty, shameful, embarrassed, and maybe wanting to compare. And he could have just sat there and wallowed in those emotions and not moved forward, but he didn't. I can really identify with Peter in, in all of these kind of emotions and feelings and failures, I fail every single day. As a father of four, you know, we have four, four and under. I, it takes a lot of patience, and I don't always have the patience for the task. And so I'll lash out at my kids, you know, with, with a harshful word or harsh, harsh tone. I struggle to, to relate with my wife in a way that would honor God 100% of the time. You know, I, I, still, I, I struggle with selfish desires. I struggle to put her goals and interests above mine on a daily basis. I also struggle in, in my walk with God. I struggle with the thought of, I ought to be beyond this by now. Why am I still struggling with this? If I was really that close to a follower of Jesus Christ, I would not make this mistake again. What is going on? Again, all of these sorts of failures produce that guilt, shame, embarrassment, and can produce that comparison that we're talking about. Many years ago, I had moved off to college. Born and raised in Riverside, I went off to college right out of, right out of high school. And... Really, from about my first 
two and a half to three years of college, I, I lived in a bit of a rebellious phase. Now, I had been raised in the church and on, on Christian morals, and um, I knew the right answers. But when I got to college, um, I had a bit of rebellion. And I didn't make any giant, catastrophic, terrible decisions, but there was definitely a string of small failures over that time, and which really led to me, at the end of that time, being pretty far away from God. And what happened was the enemy used that. He, he used the shame and guilt and embarrassment. You know, the thoughts of, well, you can't go to church. You know what you just did last night? Or, real, if you're a real Christian, you wouldn't have made that decision. There's no way that God's going to accept you now. And, and there's kind of that one degree of separation. And at the end of three years, I was pretty far away from God. And what happened was, um, my best friend who has, has followed God really closely his entire life, he came to me and he saw this kind of from a distance said, Taylor, you are going to continue to hit your head against this wall. This vicious cycle of failure will continue until you actually realize that you can't do life on your own. He said, you know, you've been trying to do this on your own under your own strength. And that's the whole reason that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross is because we can't. And until you actually admit that you need God, that you accept his grace, and that you find your identity in Christ and accept his free gift of eternal life, you will continue to fail. And as you do, it's just going to spiral and the snowball's going to grow. And so, again, that, my failures, they produce that guilt, that shame, embarrassment. And until I really decided that, you know what, I need God's help, and I accepted His grace in this area, I was really, really far away from God. All of these issues, all of these failures, if we're not careful, they can cripple us. They can keep us lying on the ground and really take us out. But the Bible actually has some really helpful advice for what to do when we fail. Here's how we move forward. First, learn all that I can from my part of the failure. Again, God uses failures to teach us things. If we learn nothing about our failures, those failures will likely repeat themselves and maybe manifest themselves in in a new sort of situation, but they're likely not going to go away if you don't learn from it. And God doesn't want to waste these opportunities. Someone at, at CBU has a saying, he says, never waste a crisis, which is really true. You know, never waste a failure. And so... There's actually some real-world examples of people and businesses that we see as successful that actually had a long string of failures before they ever tasted success. And so let's, let's look at some of these examples of businesses and, and people that, that failed before they, before they actually broke through. First, NASA. Of their first 28 rocket launch attempts, 20 were failed. Not very successful batting average, especially when you're dealing with rocket launchers. Your rockets. Henry Ford, his early businesses failed five times before he finally founded Ford Motor Company. Walt Disney, probably one of you know, the, the greatest imaginative minds, imagineers of all time, he had several failed businesses. He actually was fired from a newspaper company for lacking the imagination and good ideas necessary to write good articles. Albert Einstein was thought to be mentally handicapped before he changed the face of modern physics and eventually won won a Nobel Prize. Dr. Seuss, one of the most popular children's authors of all time, his first book was rejected by 27 publishers before it was accepted by the 28th. Vincent Van Gogh, very famous painter, guess how many paintings he sold in his lifetime? Sold one painting in his entire lifetime. Now, if you run by an original Van Gogh now, it's literally priceless. Michael Jordan, arguably, and I say that, you know, arguably one of the best basketball players of all time. We don't need to get into debate over that right now. But he was actually cut from his high school basketball team because he was not good enough. 
J.K. Rowling, uh, she was the author of Harry Potter. Now, I'll admit it, I've never seen a movie or read a book. I may be one of the few, but proud of, no, I'm not proud of that, but I just haven't, haven't done it. But I know enough that, that she has experienced some tremendous success. But what we don't know often is that she was nearly penniless. She was severely depressed, divorced, and a single mom. She was going through school, putting herself through school, while writing Harry Potter. In a five-year span of, of writing the books, she went from needing government assistance financially to put food on the table to one of the richest authors of all time. Abraham Lincoln's probably my favorite example of this, of someone that just experienced tremendous failure and just adversity before he ever became the president that we know, that, know him to be today. Let's look at his past a little bit, just to see kind of what led up to his presidency. So he was born in 1809. In 1816, when he was seven years old, his family was forced out of their home. He had to go to work at seven years old to support them. Two years later, his mother died, so he was nine years old. In 1831, he had his first failed business. One year later, he ran for state legislator. He lost. In 1832, bad year for Lincoln. He also lost his job. He wanted to go to law school. He couldn't get in. got rejected from law school. In 1833, he borrowed some money from a friend to begin a business. By the end of that year, his business has failed, and he spent the next 17 years repaying that debt to his friend. In 1834, he ran for legislator again. This time he won. He was engaged to be married to his sweetheart in 1835. She died. He was absolutely heartbroken. And actually, for six months of the year of 1836, he had a nervous breakdown, and for six months... He spent in bed, just completely bedridden. In 1838, he sought to become the state, um, state speaker legislator. He was defeated in 1840 to become an elector. He was defeated in 1843. He ran for Congress. You're getting the, the, the pattern here, right? He lost. 1849, he sought a job as a land officer in his home state. He was rejected. 1854, he ran for Senate of the United States. He lost. In 1856, he ran for vice president to get that nomination. He received less than 100 total votes. In 1858, he ran for U.S. Senate. Again, um, he lost. I don't know how this happened, but in 1860, Lincoln breaks through. (laughs) Nominated and elected as our U.S. president. And as we know, went on to be one of, if not the most kind of um, influential and iconic figure uh, of U.S. presidents in our history. If you look at the timeline, the year of, of, of Lincoln presidents made a lot of progress as, as a country. And one last example of this, just kind of perseverance and pushing through failures. Now, I'm not a movie guy. If you guys know me, I basically have a quota of two movies a year. It's usually some sort of romantic comedy with my wife, and then, or a kid's movie. Those are interchangeable now. Probably more kid's movies than romantic comedies. But. And then the other one is some sort of guy movie, you know, OCC, Guys Night Out, and we all go see Lone Survivor or something. But other than that, I don't watch a lot of movies. But if you had to have me list my top three, that changes a little bit from, from year to year, but Rudy is, is the consistent one that's always there. Now, it, it, many of you have probably seen this movie, but it's, it's just to kind of catch you up to what the clip we're about to see, but... It's this guy who always has dreamed of playing Notre Dame football. Fairly successful high school, high school athlete, but really, really small. And he was always told, you're never going to get into Notre Dame. And if you do, you're never going to make the football team. And this movie, we see this, this, this kind of journey of Rudy. And he eventually gets in, transfers to, to Notre Dame. Academically, he gets in. And somehow makes the practice squad of the Notre Dame football team. He practices with them the entire year and never gets to actually dress out or suit up in a Notre Dame football uniform. Everyone considers him a failure. They knock him down, physically knock him down and figuratively knock him down with words. 
But on the final game, his, his teammates petition. If you know the scene, you know they put the, they put the jersey on the coach's desk. They said, this one's for Rudy. This one's for Rudy. So the coach finally gives in. Let's, let's Rudy just that, but he's not going to play, right? And then the final game of Rudy's senior year, the final play is, is this clip. So let's go ahead and see what, what happens with Rudy. It's just occurred to me what the student body has been chanting for the last two or three minutes. It's the name of Ruger. Dan Ruger, a walk-on senior and the subject of a future article in yesterday's student newspaper, The Observer. After toiling for two years and hunting the field and go get it, kid! It's okay if that brings some emotion to your eyes. I get it. There were some people last service that were, were, were wiping their eyes after that clip. The reality is that no matter what I was speaking on today, I was determined to find a way to, to get this clip in there because it's just that good. Luckily, it fits quite well. That was based on, the life, uh, based on a true story, by the way. did some research. Some of that was, you know, Hollywoodized a little bit. But, um, again, just a really good example of sometimes what it takes, the, the, the failures that lead up to us finally breaking through. And so we need to grab failures by the thorns. We talked about this a few weeks back, and Josh gave us this image. And, you know, every rose has its thorns kind of a thing, and we need to learn from, from the failures. Again, if we, don't, if we don't learn from our failures, we will likely experience those very same failures again. And so on a very practical level, when you, when you have had a failure, zoom back and evaluate, what is God trying to teach me here? And then get some perspective from people that are a little wiser than you that can really help you grow from the situation. The next step to move forward is to confess and receive the Lord's forgiveness. First John 1, 9, um, 9-10 has a really helpful verse for us. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. The right response when we've blown it is to admit it. If we deny it, we're really refusing 
to give life, to give God its proper place in our life. We get back on track by specifically admitting and naming our sin, first to God, and then going to the others that we've damaged in the process and asking them for forgiveness. And what this does is it helps us actually release that failure back to God. We can claim the promises that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness when we do that. And then that helps us to move forward. I have an example of this as well. As I mentioned, I work at CBU, worked there a while. About four or five years into my time there, I was sitting at a, a Lord's Supper communion service with OCC and just asking God to bring to mind anything that I really needed to confess. And he brought this specific example during my time there as a student. So I did my undergraduate and graduate degrees there and kind of came out of nowhere. And of course, my first response is like, ah, we'll stuff that down a little bit. Maybe we'll deal with that a little bit later. Um, okay, I'll confess it to God. So God, you're, I was wrong in this situation. Please forgive me. And, and I had, you know, he had forgiven me, but I really hadn't made it right with a person that I had wronged, who was a faculty member at, at CBU. And that was the last thing I wanted to do, was to risk my reputation as a staff member to go to this person and admit my failures. But the Holy Spirit really wasn't letting me just move on. And so I got some advice and said, you know, you may, you may be, just need to, to confess this to that person. And so, you know, geared up the, the courage that it took and went to this person and just admitted my failure from four or five years prior. The person was extremely gracious and then forgave me. But what, what happened was, I really felt finally this, this relief, like, okay, I have properly dealt with this. And so, just remember that, is that when you fail, you know, you need to, to learn from it, but then you're, you're going to need to confess it um, and, and clear that up with God and with others. Next, we need to reject guilt, shame, and condemnation and stand on Christ. Romans 8.1 says... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to have to battle this because the enemy will really use guilt, shame, and condemnation to derail us in our relationship with God. I've experienced this personally. Even some of the things that, some of the decisions I made during that sort of three-year rebellion still plague me today. And if I'm not careful, they get me down. Even, even this morning before I came up here, I was battling. Like, am I, I'm not the guy for this. You know, there's, there's some shame involved in some of my decisions that were 10 years ago. Um, but, but we have to continue. We have to be willing to battle this. And then we need to, what we need to do is to put off that shame and guilt and condemnation and then put on our identity in Christ Jesus and, and, and claim the promise of this scripture and that, that there really is no condemnation in that. If you are a Christ follower... That, that Jesus Christ has actually died on, died on the cross for your sins and your identity is, is in Christ Jesus. Again, this is, this is what my friend helped me with and what that helped me to get back on track with God is that he said, you know what, Taylor? You don't have to live a life of embarrassment and guilt and shame. And Christ has died. He has cleansed you from that. And, and you need to find your identity in a child of God, um, in, in, in a son of God. And that's what helps us to get back on track and, and move forward. Next, don't compare. We talked a little bit about this. Just not helpful. We need to refuse comparison. Second Corinthians ten twelve actually has a really really helpful verse talking about comparison that says, "We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who commends themselves. We then measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. Then there's very little good. Actually, there's no good that comes from comparison, especially." 
in the areas of failure. You really can fall on two ends of the spectrum with comparison. One is, man, no one else is struggling with this. Why does everyone else seem to be able to move past this? I can't. I'm just, I am no good. Everyone else seems to be living a worry-free life. Or this end of the spectrum is, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy who says he's a Christian. There could be worse. I'm not making that bad of decisions. And neither of those are really good places to be in. So we just need to refuse comparison outright. Finally, the last step is to move forward in faith. Philippians 3, 12-14 says, Not that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting my past, straining forward to what lies ahead, and press on toward the goal of the prize of upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, whether your past is just full of accomplishment, maybe you've had a really, really impressive life, or maybe your past is just a long strand of failures, some small failures, maybe you have some epic failures. The advice here is the same, to get back up. Now, we, you know, we make progress at different pa- phases and paces depending on our life stage. Sometimes you're just making great progress in, in your walk with God and you're just, man, you're really feeling good. You kind of have those mountaintop experiences and you're feeling great. And then in other seasons, you're just trying to crawl along. You know, the enemy's getting you down, the world's getting you down, you just seem like, I cannot make progress. And you're, and, but the, the thing we need to remember in those, in those moments is to move forward. I have a kind of a story that is a good word picture or picture in my head of this. A few years ago, I had the opportunity, I use that, that term opportunity loosely, but to, to hike the Grand Canyon. So I, there was this summer, I was trying to try, try to be an adventure guy. I'm just not an adventure guy. I wanted to be, but I'm just not. So my, my good friend, John McWhorter, on, who's on staff here, we were working together at CBU at the time. He has this idea, him and, and another friend of ours, to hike Grand Canyon. We're going to go down and back in four days. It's 17, about 17 miles each way, the trail we took. So we're going to go down in two days, out in two days. So the down part was great, right? Me and my snacks, I'm just, in, I'm feeling good. We're seeing people, we're seeing animals. This is amazing. So we get to the bottom. And all of a sudden, we hear word of this terrible weather heading our way. And day four is supposed to have ice and you know, freezing temperatures. And so we have a choice to make. Well, I was outvoted, I think, but they decided that we're going to make the trip all the way out 17 miles in one day on day three. We're just going to kind of have a relaxing day, day four, spend the night in a hotel, eat a good meal. And so I don't have a choice. So I do this. We wake up super early, super, super early. And for about the first 13 miles, it's a pretty mild hike. You're, you're just kind of making your way parallel along the canyon until you get to the part where you just go straight up, practically, the last four miles. So I'm doing okay, making pretty good progress. And by the time we get on the four-mile stretch, I think you go up like a couple miles in altitude elevation gained over, over just the four miles of walking. And I am just losing steam, literally just utterly exhausted. And I tell John and my friend, why don't you guys go ahead? I'll catch up with you. And by the last mile, I have a 50-pound pack on my back, which was, I was packed terribly. I don't know what I was doing. I'm not a backpacker. I'm not an adventure guy, but I have this huge pack, and it's just switchbacks, but there's steps, like actual literal steps. You just go back and forth. By the end, guys, I'm not kidding. My legs didn't work, so I'm picking up my leg. I'm doing this. John, actually, which is embarrassing to admit, but this is the kind of guy John is. He comes down. He goes up. He's like, I don't know where Taylor is. It's been about an hour since they're at the top. He sees me doing this. So he comes down, and he takes my pack off of my back, 
and walks my pack up for me. I end up getting to the top and get in the car. I throw up from just complete exhaustion. That's not a joke. But, but that's the picture sometimes is after we fail, we really just want to lay there and just sit there and like, you know, what? I'm an epic failure. But what we need to do is we need to get up, take, it, take some notes from Peter's book and move forward in faith. And sometimes it's going to require you picking up your leg and forcing yourself to make forward progress. And sometimes it's going to take a guy like John to come alongside of you in that situation and help you to make, to make progress. You know, they're going to need to help you sort through this. Peter, one of the biggest failures of the Bible, had some of the biggest failures of the Bible, he picked himself up. He moved forward and ended up being one of Jesus' closest disciples and maybe the most influential figure in moving the early church forward. Proverbs 24.16 says, For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. The only difference in that verse between the righteous and the wise is is that the righteous get back up. And that's what we need to remember. I hope this has been helpful. I hope what this has done is, is kind of created some categories. Because again, we're going to fail. We will continue to fail. But what we need to remember is what to do when we fail. I hope this has just kind of provided a sequence of, of what to do. You know, you, you refuse these things. You confess it. And you move forward in faith. Because it, it, the Bible really speaks clearly about this and gives us some hope. And that even in the midst of our failures, God can really use us for significant ways. As I wrap up this morning, I would encourage you to think through some next steps. Here's some, I thought of two, and then there's a blank that maybe you can think of. The first is, identify where you're stuck. Maybe you failed, and you're laying there on the ground in the dirt wallowing. And you're not sure how to make progress. Identify in this sequence, what do you need to do? Maybe you need to confess that and clear it up with the right person. Maybe you just need to be willing to pick up your leg and move forward in faith. Also, you may need to to share Share what you're processing through with somebody. So that's the second next step. Share what God is showing me with so-and-so. Name that person specifically of who you want to process this, this with. Because again, it may take John coming down in my situation of the Grand Canyon, taking some of that pack to help you to, to make progress. And then finally, just a third blank. If God's convicting you or speaking to you in some sort of way, I'd encourage you to write that there so that we can, we can pray for you. In just a minute, we're going to continue with the final song and receive this morning's tithes and offerings. But I'm going to pray. And then we'll go ahead and do that. So let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the opportunity um, to, to be used by you, to hopefully be helpful, God. And I'm grateful for this church, grateful for the people that serve here so that we can continue to move the mission forward. God, as we receive our tithes and offerings, we, we pray that we would be wise stewards of that, God, and that we would have clarity on how to spend that as a church so that we, um, that we could continue to be effective here in the city of Riverside. God, in your name we pray. Amen.